Welcome to Anchor Point, where we believe that the next 30 minutes could change your life forever. So join us to consider the greatest message ever heard, the good news of the gospel, as well as sound scriptural teaching for believers, all based on the Word of God, the anchor for our souls. On last week's broadcast, evangelist Mr. Dan Schott opened up the topic of the resurrection, looking at how both the Old and New Testaments support this pivotal biblical truth. And today, Mr. Schott continues with this topic, specifically examining the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, undoubtedly the most contested Bible truth among skeptics today. Untold numbers of books have been written attempting to discredit this clearly presented Bible event, but none, absolutely none, have succeeded. In fact, through this intensive study of the resurrection, that many skeptics have themselves been converted to its truth. Today, we will look at the arguments often put forward in the attempt to disprove Christ's resurrection. Without further comment, we will let the evidence stand for itself and trust that our listeners will evaluate this important Bible claim and come to the only satisfactory conclusion that indeed Christ has risen from the dead. Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 1, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, toward the first day of the week came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where... The Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him, lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy, and did run to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and held him by the feet, and worshipped. Him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever 
I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world, unto the end of the age. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, Moreover, brethren, Paul writes, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, I want to talk just very quickly about the events of Christ's resurrection and deal with some objections that are raised. May I just go over what we read in Matthew 28? And if you have time, you can look at other accounts that are found in the Gospels. I think I'll just go over it like this. Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Now, you and I both know that no one took his life from him. He laid it down of himself. But the point is, there was a man on the cross, and he died. He was buried in a private tomb that was set in a garden, a tomb that had been dug personally by its owner, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And I wish I had more time to talk about that. That was a very unique thing. A wealthy man would most likely have hired servants to dig his tomb, and yet there is something unique about this man. I wonder if he sensed the importance of what he was actually doing. The Lord Jesus came into this world by way of a virgin womb, and through the instrumentality of Joseph of Arimathea, he he was buried in a what we would call a virgin tomb. The Lord Jesus was not cast into a family grave where he would contact corruption but he was laid in this new tomb. His disciples, after his death, were bereaved and despondent. You listen to the words of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. We hope that it was he which should redeem Israel, and the disappointment and the sloped shoulders are are just evident from the text. On Sunday morning, the tomb was found empty. that extraordinary? And Christ appeared to his disciples. We read in Acts chapter one that he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. As a result of these meetings, these terrified men and women were transformed into tigers for the gospel. Are you offended by that expression? Well, they were. They were men who actually, bravely, fearlessly, courageously turned the world upside down. Something must have happened. I'll tell you what it was. This isn't a mystery. This is ministry. They saw the risen Christ. And the earliest preaching, as I read in Acts chapter 2, centered on the message of resurrection. And this preaching was not somewhere around the world. It was preached in the very town where Jesus actually was buried and raised from the dead. I'll tell you the importance of that in just a minute. It's real simple. If you disbelieved the story, you could check. And finally... There were people like James, the brother of Christ, who was a real skeptic, but he was converted when he saw the risen Christ. There was a man named Saul, the fiercest enemy of Christianity, who became its most fragrant believer. 
after he saw the Lord Jesus. Those are the facts of the resurrection as established in the Bible. Let me tell you about some of the objections to the resurrection and tell you that objections to the resurrection are a unique category of objections to Christianity because the objections to the resurrection are not based on evidence. They are based on your world view. That is a critical point. I'll just mention one man, Ernest Renan, who was a French philosopher, didn't believe anything about the Bible, really. He thought that the resurrection was nothing more than a hallucination by Mary Magdalene. But he made a statement one day that was pretty good. I liked it. He said, I wouldn't believe in the resurrection if I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah, you heard me right. <laughs> he said, I wouldn't believe in the resurrection if I saw it with my own eyes. Kind of, uh, it kind of channels Luke 16, doesn't it? <laughs> They will not believe, though one rose from the dead. You know, th that isn't about evidence. That's a man who is willing to suspend what his own eyes and his own reason and his own intellect tell him just because it's unthinkable to acknowledge that God could raise his son from the dead. So I want to just warn you about this. I know that people think that apologetics are just able to overcome all sorts of obstacles and people will immediately be saved if you spring your wisdom on them. Uh, I'm not so convinced of that. People have worldviews that are totally opposed to any idea of resurrection. And so it's not about the evidence. Let me tell you what the evidence is. For example, one of the, the great, um, one of the great objections to the resurrection is the fact that maybe Jesus didn't even die at all. This is called the swoon theory. And that somehow Christ just was unconscious. He was put in the tomb. And three days later, he divested himself of about a hundred pounds of grave clothes, uh, pushed away the great stone, and uh, snuck away into the night. Jesus really didn't die at all. You say, does anybody really believe that? Uh, actually, yes. So let me just tell you the first argument, and this is pretty simple. Jesus really died, because you can't be raised from the dead unless you're dead. Let me tell you that there are four reasons to believe that Jesus really died. And, I, and I'm, I'm just leaving the, the fact that we are people of faith here who take what the Bible says at face value. But let me tell you, first of all, the scourging of the Lord Jesus was sufficient to cause his death. I actually was trying to eat lunch last week and read something about the scourging of Christ, and I had to push myself away. Because if you understand the violence and the terror of Roman scourging, you really can't eat at the same time. It was sufficient in and of itself, and there actually were many victims who actually died before they got to the cross. The second thing is, is that he was crucified. And the details of crucifixion are equally gruesome as a person hangs on the cross and slowly and painfully and terrifyingly expires. There was the desecration of his body by a soldier who took a spear and pierced his side. And I judge from the report that blood and water came out that it likely reached his heart. Certainly enough in and of itself to have created death had not death already occurred. And then there were the three days locked in a dark tomb. And if those previous injuries had not been enough to secure his death, certainly that length of time without medical care would have certainly brought it about. You see, the people who were there thought that he was dead. Why should we doubt that? The soldiers thought he was dead. They didn't break his legs. And they were experts on death. The man with the spear thought he was dead. You say, how do you know that? Because the governor ordered his death by crucifixion. That man would not have dared to end Christ's life with a spear. That would have been disobeying orders. What that man did with the spear was the desecration of a dead body. He believed him to be dead. I will tell you that the chief priest thought he was dead. That's why he wanted the tomb sealed. 
And I will tell you that Nicodemus and Joseph thought he was dead. I don't mean to be a smart aleck, but they didn't take him to a hospital. They took him to a cemetery. Why? He was dead. I want to tell you that the Lord Jesus truly died. You know that. But I want to tell you about a second line of thinking that is often advanced on this subject, and that is having to do with the empty tomb. Now, there are a number of permutations of this sort of idea, the wrong tomb theory, whether the body was stolen by his enemies or by his disciples or whether they couldn't figure out what tomb it was. I'm just going to summarize that all with some real simple observations. Number one, everybody knew where the tomb was. This wasn't New York City. This was Jerusalem. It was a small town. Everybody knew where the cemetery was. Everybody had watched Joseph of Arimathea making that tomb. There wasn't even a chance of mistaking some tombstones. This was in a private garden, a tomb that stood by itself. Everybody knew where it was. And if the disciples had gone to the wrong tomb, the authorities would have gone to the correct one. And I tell you that even if somebody had stolen away the body, there's two things I'll say about that. If his enemies had stolen away, when the apostles began to preach about the resurrection from the dead, they would have produced the body. And number two, if the disciples stole it away, it's highly unlikely that they would have suffered what they did for something that they knew to be a lie. As a matter of fact, this is very interesting. Did you know that the empty tomb is not even mentioned in the book of the Acts? Do you know why? Because everybody knew that the tomb was empty. The third one has to do with the eyewitness accounts. And this is where a lot of people have made a lot of hay and, you know, they really insult uh, the people that were there that day. I know we have people running around saying that they've seen Elvis at the mall and things like that. But um, I want to tell you that the issue of eyewitnesses creates unmistakable credibility to the fact that the Lord Jesus was raised. Listen carefully. He appeared on a dozen separate occasions in a variety of settings to different people over a 40-day period. He was seen by men and women. He was seen walking and talking and eating. And on one memorable occasion, 500 people saw him at once. And here's the interesting thing. There is no such thing as group hallucination. People have hallucinations by themselves. They don't have them in groups. And hypnosis can only take place, if there is such a thing, under tightly controlled circumstances, not under the sprawling story of the 40 days after the resurrection of Christ. And as a matter of fact, these people did not expect to see Christ back. This is not just wish fulfillment. Oh, we want him to come back, so we'll imagine that he did. Look at the surprise of the disciples when they see him. They can't believe it. And that's all summarized by the disbelief of Thomas. I'm not going to believe it unless I see him and I can touch him unless I can verify the evidence myself. This is no wish fulfillment, but I think this is the most amazing part. These trembling, cowering disciples were, in a single stroke, transformed. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He said, I went through labors and imprisonments, countless beatings, near death. Five times I had 40 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without food, in cold and exposure. What makes a man do that? Would he do that for a lie? He would not. The great transformation in the lives of those apostles and disciples was this. They had seen 
the Lord. I want to talk about what we find in the epistles about the theological significance of the resurrection of Christ. And I'm going to have to go through this quickly. I just am really disappointed at not being able to get more of this out, but I'll just touch it and I hope that it'll be a blessing to you. The resurrection of Christ declares his deity, first of all. That's what Romans chapter 1 tells us. The gospel of God concerning his Son declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Isn't that nice? Secondly, it declares God's satisfaction with the cross. How do we know that God was satisfied with what his son did? Well, it's simple. He raised him from the dead. Actually, in the Feast of First Fruits, there's a beautiful expression there that when the priest waved the sheaf before the Lord, it was accepted for you. God accepted what Christ did. Now, let me talk about the resurrection and its significance for believers. First of all, Christ's resurrection ensures that we are born again. Let me read 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I, I had never really seriously thought about that verse before, but that's lovely. The resurrection of Christ is implicit in the fact that we ourselves can be born again. Christ's resurrection undergirds our justification. You know in Romans chapter 4, the story of Abraham who staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. And this is what it says. For us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and raised again to prove, to ratify, to demonstrate our justification. The resurrection of Christ incents us to live sanctified lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm so sorry that we're not going to touch that more. One of the interesting things in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the apostle writes that do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. You see, the resurrection of Christ calls us to a new kind of life. Then I want to think just a little about the fact that Christ's resurrection strengthens our foundation. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if the resurrection didn't happen, we're miserable people. The example of people who bravely, in light of the resurrection, served Christ and gave their lives for it. There were others who filled in the ranks courageously because the resurrection of Christ gave them bravery and courage. And last of all on this point, I'll mention that Christ's resurrection guarantees our own transformation. As I look out, there's some people out there with graying and white and no hair. We're a little farther along the track. We're beginning to realize that our bodies are starting to fail us. We don't have the same muscle, uh, dinner muscles maybe, but not the other muscles. And there's a lot of things going wrong. And uh, I'll tell you, when you get older, I can tell you this in personal experience. The great truth about the rapture and the resurrection began to take on some very real meaning. Well, the resurrection of Christ gives us hope. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Philippians chapter 1, we are confident that He which hath begun a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ, knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us 
also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. But I just want to talk about the role of the resurrection in the gospel. When I come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I discover that the gospel must always be preached in four phases. What are they? That Christ died, that Christ was buried, that Christ rose, and that Christ was seen. And those four propositions are the gospel. I know that we have to preach about sin and judgment and some other things. But if you don't preach died, buried, raised, seen, Paul says, you haven't quite got the gospel right yet. You can look in Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches to the Jews. We read this together. We can read in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is preaching to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him the third day. Paul's first recorded gospel message in Acts chapter 13. God raised him from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. And of course, when Paul begins to preach to the Gentiles, you'll remember him before Felix, that the Lord Jesus must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So that's the story of resurrection. And you know, the story of resurrection is very personal to everyone who is saved, because Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But I hope the Lord will help you to appreciate the reality of the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits of all the resurrections that will follow. You and I are going to be quickened together with him and live gloriously with him for all eternity. Yes, Christ's resurrection was a reality, my friend. The leaders of every other religious teaching are all dead, in their graves, or they will be. But Christ is the only one who was raised back to life again by the tremendous power of God. He is alive today, and he awaits to be your Savior. What a wonderful Savior we have. So why don't you accept him today as your very own? Make this Easter time the time when you are saved, and rejoice in the new life that only Christ can give. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and the very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website at anchorpointradio.com. There you will find more information, as well as the location, programs, and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. My name is John Sharp, and thank you once again for listening. And we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for Anchor Point, where we believe that in times like these, you need a Savior. And in times like these, you need an anchor.